0: Because if you're meditating every day, you're building up a deep procedural process that starts to do you in the same way that a lot of people who have done fitness or sport, they know what it's like to crave to be on the field. They know what it's like to have that craving, like I need to go to the gym, you know? Because their procedural memory and other levels of memory have created a pattern and that pattern now wants to be satisfied because of dopamine in the brain, et cetera. So that helps also. Meditating more leads to more meditation. Then meditating with With memorization and recall leads to desiring and using memorization and recall more. Then this specific content, which is, again, like this Zen sort of shattering of everything you think you understand about your own mind. Well, that has the best benefit of all because nothing's worse than having a mind that's just like blah, 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 and then being able to turn it off. (laughs) This is golden, absolutely golden. So that really helps. can be totally depressed, feeling terrible. But when you turn your mind off, you realize that it's your mind, or at least in my case, I can only speak for myself. It's the mind that is making it so bad, you know? It's it's Mm. just, when you take away the mind and it's just like, yeah, okay, the body doesn't feel that great today. It's dark outside or, or ate something that I shouldn't have three days ago, blah, blah, blah. Like just sitting there, reflecting on it mentally with words, that's a huge part of the problem. You take that problem away then the world's just coming into being, and it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Hello, PKMers. Welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfont, the podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. Anthony Metivier is the creator of the Magnetic Memory Method, a collection of courses that teaches students how to memorize words, numbers, names, poetry, and more, as well as the author behind a dozen best-selling books on the topic of memory and language learning. This week, we talked about how memory techniques and meditation can help you live more in the present, how to take notes in a way that aids memory, And the underlying nature of reality. This conversation was a doozy. And I recommend every single one of you listens to the end because there are not many conversations I have had that I can say have fundamentally completely shifted the way I've seen the world from just an hour and 45 minutes. So you should really stick out for this one in particular. Anthony, I have. I'm very excited to be able to record a podcast because over the past few weeks, I've been doing like a deep dive into some of the courses that you have on memory. And the first thing that I wanted to ask was if you could tell us your story. How did you get into the art of memory? And what keeps you so passionate about it today?
0: Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm (laughs) passionate about it because these techniques... Literally saved my skin, saved my life. I was, I encountered them by accident, really, while I was struggling in university. I had started my PhD and I had, during my BA, many years before that, been in the hospital for certain issues with what ultimately what was diagnosed at the time, anyway, as bipolar disorder. And a lot of people, when they get this, they start with the manic and then they ultimately just end up in the depressive. And that's kind of where I was stuck around the not exactly the beginning of my PhD, but in that sort of beginning phase. And long story short, I was skipping reality, trying to avoid reality. But I found myself up on campus one day in this dark winter. But at York University in Toronto, there's a place called York Lanes that emulates the outdoors. So it was like a sunny day in the middle of winter. (laughs) And these... Street magicians came up to me. It was like the beginning of the YouTube era. And uh, David Blaine, street magic was all the rage. And this triggered a memory in my from my childhood where I had done a lot of magic tricks. And so then I, still avoiding life, I started to to really look at magic. And in magic, there's a, a number of reasons why you would memorize a deck of cards. And one of them is a trick called any card, any number. And so I wanted to learn that. And to do that, I really needed to memorize a deck of cards. I thought this was going to be impossible. But the reality was, it was really easy. It was fun. Got me to forget about being depressed so much. And then I just instantly saw that if I can memorize all these cards, I can just get all this dense, complicated French philosophy and, you know, biblical Hebrew, all the stuff that I was studying, I can get it onto cards, get those cards into memory palaces the same way that I did with the playing cards. And that's what I did. And it felt amazing. Didn't cure my depression exactly, but it felt very good. I always put it down to having more confidence with my abilities uh, to remember stuff because that's one of the worst things. You're depressed and then you have this brain fog and you can you can barely string a sentence together. So you get more depressed. But here. I could have the depressive symptoms, but remember stuff. And so I always put this feeling better down to that sort of confidence boost. But Mm. in the years since, I've discovered research that shows very positive outcomes for people who use memory palaces for resolving PTSD symptoms and depression symptoms. And when I saw that, I was like, of course. So there's a lot of science reasons and terms that we could unpack about why that's happening that has to do with, you know positive and negative ions flowing through the synapses of the brain and all that, <laughs> like that. But long story short, it worked. It saved my life. And I've just never stopped studying them, never stopped practicing memory techniques. And eventually I started to teach them. That caught on. And when I see other people getting similar results, even better results than I get, then that just keeps the passion going. So it's a it's a perfect hmm. circle in, in that sense.
1: That's interesting. I, I know one of the signs or are, are like things that a lot of depressive people say is th- there's a feeling of like a lack of control. So it sounds like one of the things that was so powerful about the memory techniques is it was an avenue where you felt like you could control something in your life, like you could try and memorize a deck of cards. And it actually worked out surprisingly well yeah it's ironic though
0: because the real outcome is actually letting go of control so mm. you're not wrong or you're not what you're saying makes sense but it's it's almost the opposite. I think that there's so much control freakism in all kinds of lives you know not just depression not just manic or whatnot but there's just this deep need to be in control. But what memory techniques do is actually release you from needing control. Because if you set up your memory systems correctly, you're not in control of them. They're controlling you. So when we see the memory competitors breaking records, why are they breaking records? Like, why is it now less than 12 seconds to memorize 52 cards? Is it because they're hyper-controlled over the process? No, I would say not. It's exactly the opposite. It's, it's using procedural and figural and episodic memory training, spatial memory training. To release your control and have it happen to you at such a rate that you're just doing it, but it's doing you. So you may want to mm. unpack specifically how that all works. But in my also my experience, memory techniques are at their best when you get out of the way, when you're not in control of it at all. So mm.
1: I'm difficult. glad that you. I'm glad you clarified that because what that reminds me of is uh, a study I read recently about why expert chess players are so good at chess. Mm. And it's completely counterintuitive to what most people think, which is they associate chess with really high intelligence. But what they found in the study is people that are really, really good at chess actually aren't necessarily thinking as much as you would think in like speed chess, they've just become so good at uh, memorizing different chess positions and different uh, strategies that it just comes automatically to them. And it sounds similar to what you're saying about memory techniques right now is there's a certain like lack of control that actually makes it better. Yeah. You surrender to
0: it. It, I think I know the, study you're referring to, or I've read something very similar recently. The th- You see it in music also. So if you learn jazz or learn anything about jazz, I'm certainly not a, a jazz master, but I've taken jazz bass course and I, I've played music most of my life. When you see these people like Alex Skolnick or somebody just riffing like crazy over a chord progression, so much of that is like what you just described with chess. It is knowing what key you're in, knowing all the possible positions that things can fall into on the fretboard and then just not really thinking about it too much and letting your fingers innovate and your you know your your picking fingers or how you use a plectrum to to just sort of innovate in a very constrained space but you let go with the, what the drummer's doing so you're 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 allowing the music to follow the rules of the key signature that you're in and respond to whatever the drummer's doing, whatever the bass player is doing. And you're kind of just letting pre-memorized riffs flow. So,
1: mm.
0: you know, you'd maybe want to interview Alex Golnick and see, test that if he would say something similar. <laughs> but I think so. I mean, I, I'm studying what's called limited hexaphonic transpositions right now in music. And th- that's a, a, a sort of complex thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Once that I understood what these limited hexaphonic transpositions are, like only these notes, only these particular uh, key signatures allow for those notes and then memorize those patterns. Then when you're in those chord structures, then you can do those limited hexaphonic transpositions and you just don't think about it. You just play within those rules and you're responding to the chord progression. And it's so much fun because technically you're not there. The music is.
1: Mm, mm. I have, I have two questions related to that. And the first is, how do you think that, that, that feeling of like, submitting to the memory techniques. How did that help you with your depressive symptoms? Well, I think it took me
0: some time before <laughs> that I that I got to that point where I understood that the real deal of the mnemonics is to release control. And you <clears throat> know, it's, it's not just releasing control. It, 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 it's releasing it in the context of having trained in a particular way. So where things really started to switch for me was when I started to memorize Sanskrit. And so I'd had these benefits for many, many Many years Mm -hmm. of just feeling better and and wondering why and i meditated and so forth but one day a friend of mine he said have you ever thought of memorizing mantras and i was like what what the heck am i going to memorize mantras for you know all this (laughs) stuff blah 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 and then he said yeah that's what this guy gary weber said uh you know he wanted to find a secular Way to do practices. I don't even know if this is true that Gary Weber said this, but anyway, so I read this book that my friend suggested by Gary Weber called Happiness Beyond Thought. Sure enough, it talks about memorizing these mantras. And uh, so I said, well, why not? You know, <laughs> I know how to memorize stuff. So I memorized them, and the content of them really are these sort of Zen like koans, these weird statements that break what you think you you know about reality. They break what you think you know about language. They break what you think you know about consciousness, etc. And continuing to work with these, then, well, a couple of things happen. First of all, you have an intellectual change of how you understand the nature of your own being, Right? Which is cool. That helps. And then you have procedural memory benefits. Because if you're meditating every day, you're building up a deep procedural process that starts to do you in the same way that a lot of people who have done fitness or sport, they know what it's like to crave to be on the field. They know what it's like to have that craving, like, I need to go to the gym, you know? Because their procedural memory and other levels of memory have created a pattern and that pattern now wants to be satisfied because of dopamine in the brain etc so that helps also meditating more leads to more meditation then meditating with with memorization and recall leads to desiring and using memorization and recall more. Then this specific content, which is, again, like this Zen sort of shattering of everything you think you understand about your own mind. <laughs> well, that has the best benefit of all because nothing's worse than having a mind that's just like blah, 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 and then being able to <laughs> it off. This is golden, absolutely golden. So that really helps. Can be totally depressed, feeling terrible. But when you turn your mind off, you realize that it's your mind, or at least in my case, I can only speak for myself. It's the mind that is making it so bad, you know, it's, mm. it's just, when you take away the mind and it's just like, yeah, okay. The body doesn't feel that great today. It's dark outside or, or ate something that I shouldn't have three days ago, blah, blah, blah. Like just sitting there reflecting on it mentally with words. That's a huge part of the problem. You take that problem away, then the world's just coming into being. And it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. So it sounds like... What you're saying is by memorizing mantras or uh, other things as it relates to medit- uh, to memorization, it literally changes the way that you see the world, the way that you think, which actually can help you in turn uh, create like more positive thinking habits. That and uh, like you just said, um, help you realize that <laughs> sometimes it's really just the mind that. Make something into a problem rather than the objective thing in reality. Yeah, I would even say not even positive thinking habits, just
0: no thinking habits, right?
1: Because mm-hmm. po-
0: A lot of positive thinking has poison in it, you know, uh, it's so seductive and so easy to, to have these positive thoughts that just cause you to fall on your face because there's no truth in them, you know? Uh, so, I I, I I tend to go careful and, and light on the affirmations. <laughs> it's,
1: mm, it's can, can you dive
0: more into that, actually? I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, there's a good book Richard Weissman wrote called 59 Seconds. And uh-huh. one of the criticisms he has in there of things like NLP and, you know, all, all these positive affirmations is that people tend to choose these impossible goals to meditate upon. So, you'll have like an endomorphic person wishing to have an ectomorphic form. And because it, because it, it's, just, it's like somebody who's never, ever in a million years going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger is sitting there yeah. doing this positive visualization about an impossible goal, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> That's just an extreme example of mm-hmm. something that is very, very easy to do. It, you know, oh, I'm gonna think positively that my next book will be better than the previous one, or I'm gonna have this positive affirmation that yada, yada, yada. like we have these these endless fantasies, which are in many ways, The brain's way of helping us cope with the fact that we're going to die. Like death anxiety is real. I hear that Freud is coming back into vogue, right? And one of the reasons why he's coming back into vogue is because he was right. We do have death anxiety. We behave symbolically to try to ease this horrible knowledge that we die. And not only that, but even the most secure individual who thinks that they've got it in terms of their religious beliefs or whatnot, they still have, if they're intellectually honest, doubt. And that creates anxiety, which creates Hmm. specifically death anxiety. And then that leads to symbolic behaviors. Those symbolic behaviors lead to guilt formation because when you're behaving symbolically, you're not really behaving as you probably would if you were aware of symbolic behavior formation. And so, like, you could just really, really see that positive affirmation, positive thought, and so forth is usually no, I shouldn't say usually, but more often than one would like, it is leading you into the prison you're trying to escape. So no thought is just the the goal, at least for me. And I would encourage lots of people to get into this because it is the freedom that, I mean, I've gone through psychoanalysis is it's one reason why I can speak about Freud uh, in, in even more depth than we already have. It is um, so clear that that the, the psychoanalytic outcomes that you used to be able to get were beyond positive, beyond negative. Uh, this is why Freud worried that people would think that he uh, had stolen all his ideas from Nietzsche, because... They're they're mm. they're in Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche wrote Beyond Good and Evil. And mm-hmm. in fact, Nietzsche refers to spiritual traditions um, that use Zen koans. Like he refers he he names Advaita Vedanta specifically. And he says, You guys think you have woken up? You haven't even understood the first thing about waking up, you know? Because <laughs> and I take this as a criticism to myself too. Uh, you're sitting there with your fancy memorized stuff, and you think that this is waking up. Like, just <laughs> here's the real wake up call. If you have a brain, if you're made out of meat, you're going to think you're not going to escape it. It's always going to return. And if you really want to do something, you have to go to that coldest place beyond good and evil, which essentially means we don't know anything about anything that, you know, we we constantly are projecting fantasy onto the world. And that's the mm-hmm. thing to escape is j- just sit, you know? Nietzsche, Nietzsche says at one point, he's like, the, the, the secret is to eat something great every day, go for walks every day, fart when you have to, and be
1: like Nietzsche. <laughs> 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 the, the... That last line. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he
0: he's being zen himself, right? He's trying yeah. to break what you understand about reality. Because five sentences mm. later, he's going to say, if you think that you understand Nietzsche, you haven't understood the first thing that I've said. There is no Nietzsche. Mm. Right? <laughs> Nietzsche is the production of a brain trying to cope with reality. It's an illusion. Oh,
1: that is fascinating. He says, yeah, in, like... In,
0: um, in, also uh, also spoke Zarathustra or also sprach Zarathustra in German. He says, you won't believe me when I tell you this, but that eye that keeps coming out of your mouth, it's not a production of the mind. It's a performance of the body, which is made from a biological brain. You know, mind isn't real. It's performed. <clears throat> like <clears throat> the actor playing King Lear on the stage. King Lear's not real. It's a performance of a body that has memorized words. That's what humans are. They are meat that has memorized words. You say a word, I respond. Is there a a me here? Yes, to a certain extent, but it's also just a performance. Mm.
1: Oh, okay. I have so many questions based off that. First thing that I wanted to say is uh, I thought you're talking about the positive thinking. Totally agree now that you say that. like As as much as I wish and meditate on getting a Nobel Prize, uh, it's not going to happen. So so (laughs) I mean, don't know. But um, yeah. Uh, And then what you I did have a question related to what you said with Freud and not thinking. One of the things I understand about Freud's theory is how much the subconscious uh, has an effect on how we act in the world. And so I wanted to ask with what you were saying about like cultivating an ability to just not think being very important. How do you do that if your subconscious has the tendency to just bring stuff up out of nowhere, kind of almost to like no will of your own?
0: Yeah, because you don't
1: have will of your own.
0: <laughs> that's exactly, <laughs> the, the, that's where, yeah. if, you, if you sort of scale out, w- what I see as really happening in reality is some humans learn some things. For whatever reason, some of the humans who learn some things they become teachers. They are now producing the knowledge. Then some other people bump into it. They go, wow, that really makes sense to me. They adopt it. The mirror neurons in their brains help them. And then they themselves either just become the beneficiaries of the knowledge or they pass the knowledge on because they themselves become teachers. Now then there's a quality issue. Well, how good are they as teachers, et cetera? How switched on to the actual knowledge are they versus bringing some agenda that is baked into their system because of other things that they've learned, right? Which is why in a Mm -hmm. lot of spiritual traditions and even in psychoanalysis, you get the formation of hierarchies where people argue, well, no, that's the real deal. No, that's the real deal. Actually, if you would know this, then that's the real deal. Now, how do you deal with all of that, right? Well, you realize that your memory is doing you. So if you were to say to me, yeah, but Carl Jung, right? Then I'm going to say, again, I'm just going to have my unconscious or my memory become conscious and I'll say, yeah, but you know, Carl Jung and then da, 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 And then we go back and forth and then we add in Adler and all that sort of stuff, right? Well, this is just stuff coming up from our minds. But I think the most direct answer to your question is if you feel attracted to controlling your mind, so to speak, which it means not controlling your mind, then what you're looking at is actually conditioning the physical brain. So mm. this is this is where I think the difference really comes in. We're not really talking about the mind. We're talking about a physical brain and we're talking about conditioning it. So Freud, he he cooked up this stuff, the superego, the ego, and the id. These, I think these things got taken too seriously. They're a diagram of basically what he saw as a mechanistic process, a plumbing, a model of plumbing. And like Robert Langs is one of the great innovators of what Freud was saying. And I would highly recommend looking that guy up. He's not the guy who writes books about origami. Uh, who's another Robert Langs? <laughs> uh, search Robert Langs and psychoanalysis. Robert Langs thought that probably these mechanisms, they're not, it's not that there's really a super ego and an id and an ego. It's that there's probably something like a, a, uh, a virus catcher So the unconscious mind is a filter and things are coming in that threaten the ego. So they're filtered into the unconscious, right? And then later, if you're in a situation, the unconscious may help you positively when some new thing comes up because uh, you're having just a conversation or whatever, or it may help you negatively because it's trying to protect you from death anxiety, right? So what psychoanalysis was trying to do was to help you see yourself involved in that process to experience unconscious filtering. And that would happen by the analysis pointing out, or the a- a- analyst better said, pointing out to the analyzant or the patient that, hey, you're projecting on me now or you're repressing something or you're rejecting this obvious truth or what have you. Your unconscious mind is causing you to filter this. So they're experiencing the mechanism in real time. Now, if you were to memorize a bunch of Sanskrit, you're essentially doing the same thing to yourself. You're conditioning your brain, not in a psychoanalytic setting over many, many months where the the psychoanalyst is constantly pointing out to you the actual process by which you your your unconscious mind causes you to filter stuff out that you find threatening and causes you to project things that help you protect yourself from threats you're just doing this on your own uh, by memorizing certain material but you're also physically conditioning the brain so in a in, in a perfect world you get to do both which i was able to do with psychoanalysis and this recommended practice that uh, Gary Weber put together, but he himself is just getting it from other sources. But I think that the actual uh, physical activity and the outcomes are very, very similar. I just think that the uh, memory meditation stuff is is supercharged. But I don't I don't get to, to really lay down the law on that because I did have the benefit of both, you know? Mm. Anyway, does that mm. help answer the question? Uh, it, it's a- I,
1: I think it did. I think what... I'm going to try and summarize what you said and you tell me if I got it right. I think what you're saying is we when we're thinking about Freud's theory, have a tendency to see like mind and brain. But the thing is when, when you condition yourself with certain mem- uh w- when you condition yourself, you are literally changing the physical brain. And that is how different thoughts end up coming up into conscious um, and, or thoughts uh, experiences in the world get filtered into the unconscious. It's your, your physical brain is the thing doing that. It's not like some yeah, exactly, other entity. And
0: the sort of wiggly part is that it's not necessarily the case that thoughts aren't physical. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. in the brain chemistry at some level. Uh, mm-hmm. And so another way to look at this is our brains have something called the default mode network, which is a mm-hmm. lot of where we are like, blah, 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 I, 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 me, 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 me. And then there's the task positive network, which is just now. You know, the, the climber who is on the face m- m- of the mountain with no ropes, just doing freeform climbing, they're so in the now and their task positive brain is, is really, really switched on. So in meditation, you're using all these Zen-like statements that show you that your thoughts aren't real and help patch you into the present moment. Or in psychoanalysis, where you almost have a modern version of confession, if the process is working, you're much more in task positive network, which is different than default mode network. You're less, less, I, I, me, me, me. You're more in the moment. And if the psychoanalysis process is working, then you're realizing these words that are coming out of my mouth are being produced by these mechanistic brain functions that we perceive symbolically, or that we perceive as being real, more real than they are. Like, oh, my dad you know, did this and that means that. Well, this is the brain interpreting things. It's creating thoughts that are have a feedback loop that create not just misery, but more thoughts, thoughts about the misery. It's a pump. It, it is plumbing, right? That's what. That's how I understand the Freudian thing. So how do you escape it? You start to observe that the plumbing is doing you. Your, perf- It's making you perform all of this production. And the sewage just keeps growing and growing and growing until you figure out how to clear it out and then ideally not introduce new sewage. Or if new sewage appears, which it almost certainly will, you know, because you are a meat tube that has a brain, then you have a a better (laughs) way of dealing with it and flushing it out, cleaning it out as soon as you can. So that's basically what the memorization process can do for you as well, is it creates this task positive network state that you're in much more often than default mode network, which is why I think you see a lot of people, Eckhart Tolle, Tony Robbins, you know, think what you like about them if you go, oh, those weirdos, you know, uh, 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 snake oil salesmen, etc., which is a valid criticism in some ways. Um, but uh, what I really mean is I think those guys are legit. like they're legitimately happy regardless of whatever they've achieved in in their businesses. And I think that what you see is that they quote from memory a lot. And that's mm-hmm. part of of why it's happening. So I'm trying to figure out how best to study this. I don't know if Tony Robbins and uh, Edgar Tollier are ever going to be like, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll let you scan my brain or what have you, or I'll let you test how many quotes that I actually know or what have you. But I think that you just see this common denominator. People who have well-exercised memory tend to just beam the proof of concept mm. because it Can is a I? physical thing.
1: Yeah. Okay. I think what it is you're saying is if you have a very good memory and you're able to get away from the default mode network by by really like being present in a lot of uh, different aspects of life, you're able to, oh, how do I, how do I say this? <laughs> See, I don't have this in memory. I haven't thought this deeply about <laughs> this, this subject yet. Can you well, say what you just said about about like being able to turn off those uh, uh, habitual thoughts that just come up all the time in different
0: words? Sure. It's like putting on a stoplight and then actually having the stoplight work. So mm. you know, Eckhart Tolle, uh, I think the book is called Stillness Speaks. Right on the first page, mm-hmm. he says, what we're talking about is beyond name and form. So you need to put the stoplight on and you need the stoplight to work. So, how do you do that? And my best answer, having had those experiences, is from memorizing some stuff and letting those memorized mantras play out to the point that they condition me so that when, so if we've got good virus running a tape through the body, when bad virus comes, good virus just eats the bad virus almost before bad virus has a chance to get. Why am I saying good virus, bad virus? Well, one of the things that horrifies humans is the realization that we are a virus. We are a cancer, right? We are eating this planet, you know, and I don't want to get into like all the politics about that, but there's just no doubt about it. Mm. Um, Julia Kristeva has a great book called Powers of Horror. uh, And in that book, she's she goes deep into like biblical texts the ancient hebrew texts and so forth and shows how so much of that stuff is humans dealing with the fact that they are the monster you know we realize that we are we are monstrous and we have to we have to come up with symbolic behaviors that help us deal with it and the real issue in society that we have is that some people are aware of this game and others are not they're as we say they're in the dream they're in the matrix you know they they haven't woken up
1: <laughs> they're <yet>. asleep <laughs>
0: right and when you wake up the first thing that you deal with is the reality that, as happens in the Matrix, the real is a desert. Morpheus says, welcome to the desert of the real, right? The destruction is already here. We know the planet is either going to be absorbed by the explosion of our sun or the sun's going to burn out and then we <laughs> we we die from cold. Like, we don't know which is it, but we know that something like that's going to happen, right? So, mm. yeah get rid of thoughts, enjoy this incredibly strange and wonderful sensation of what it's like to to have a body, to be a body, and start to learn that something is performing you. You have a language. That language has infected you. Which language? Usually the one... That your parents spoke right mm. if it had been that you were born in japan you'd be speaking japanese if you were born here you'd be speaking that right maybe you spoke multiple languages because those multiple languages were around you then you would have insight that languages are really more similar than they are different and when it comes to deep structure and surface structure so now you just have this problem that you are the perpetrator of the language not only are you here to spread your dna But you're also here to spread your culture, your language, and all that stuff. And so much of the great teachings is be very, very careful, very, very selective about how you play that game. Because the game is playing you. And if you can get your foot in the door, you can reduce how the game is playing you. You can reduce how the language virus causes you to say and spread the garbage that didn't work for other people, but they still spray it. Maybe it does work. Maybe that's their strategy, right? But you don't necessarily have to be caught up in it because their outcomes don't have to be your outcomes. You might want different outcomes. So you get more of the good thought viruses. And then when the bad ones come, the good ones just eat them up almost as fast as they can come in. Mm. It catches you, mm. you got to keep practicing. It's not like, uh, forget it and set it. You know, if you don't keep practicing, then you will forget these, uh, wonderful new ways of thinking about things.
1: Mm. it. it- it almost sounds like part of the magic of what it is you're saying is by ingraining these thought patterns. As soon as a negative thought or a negative, uh, you you see something negative come into consciousness, it's almost automatic the dispersal of that thing. You don't let it affect you like it might have if you didn't have that uh, automatic ability to do that. And in one of the questions. I wanted to ask off of that is, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe our relationship with memory throughout the thousands and thousands of years ago, we saw memory as much more important, um, almost synonymous with intelligence. And for instance, like the ancient Greeks, I believe saw it as synonymous with intelligence, whereas now it seems like memory is completely... Completely not seen as as important as it once was. How do you think, first of all, why do you think that is? And also, how do you think that that might be that might play into what it is we're talking about, uh, in terms of being able to protect yourself from those negative things that come into consciousness.
0: This is a really deep one. I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole we want to go, but I think you can play this in different ways. So the memory situation we find ourselves in now is that memory is not really sufficient to the cause, the word memory. It doesn't really describe, it doesn't have the same descriptive power. So when we're talking about memory, we're thinking, okay, so human memory, and we can offload so much to our devices now. So are we more fit or less fit? And That has a contextual answer, right? So if you're working for a corporation and you want to be the top job person or what have you, or, you know, be the CEO one day or all this kind of stuff, right? If you want those outcomes, then it may be in that context that you need a superior memory on the spot because you're going to have a lot of business meetings it really helps to know everybody's name, to know details of their family, because you're doing the schmoozing, you know, it's like, hey, how's Janet and little Timmy and Tom, you know, like <laughs> being able to do that with with some mental and verbal dexterity is really, really useful in that context. But there may be other people who are in a different field, and they don't need that kind of verbal dexterity. So memory might mean a different thing for them. And they're just having a blast offloading stuff to their phone, right? They're mm-hmm. they can't imagine a situation in their lives where they're actually being crippled by this. It's making things more efficient. They don't have to memorize things. Now, I'm I'm going out of my way to to be generous to to that sort of outlook. I think that's ultimately sort of mm-hmm. a bad thing because you're you're offloading not only the skill of memorizing say the phone numbers of your family members, even their names, <laughs> even the new names of people you meet. You just like wave your phone at each other and you've transferred your data and you don't even have to Look at their last name because I can always look it up, right? There's a weakening function to that. But the reason why I would give it some, some leg room to be potentially positive is because there's not necessarily the same intelligences at play anymore. So in the older times, medieval times, the ancient Greek times, etc., you would want there to be certain people who knew medicines really, really well there were times of drought, there were times of flood, you could not rely on having that information in books. Those books could be burned in a fire. Those books could be smudged in a flood. You know, you want at least a couple of people in your tribe or in your city or what have you to have real in-depth knowledge that travels with them, right? But we are now in a situation where we value memory so much that we have billion-dollar farms In several locations around the world that are hard drives devoted to not just storing information, but distributing it through devices across the world, right? So I would say that we actually, you could make the argument, we value memory more than we ever had before. We just now have a different relationship to it. And we have a situation where the word memory doesn't mean the same thing anymore. So I would never want to land on good, bad, or the other thing. But what I would say is that you do have a physical brain. As long as you have a physical brain, it is going to be like any muscle in your body. Its fitness is going to be relative to the exercise that you give it. So if you want to be able to operate in multiple contexts, land on your feet, perform at your absolute best, then you have every reason to want to have a fit memory, a fit brain. And uh, you don't have to not enjoy contemporary technology, but you should just like anything, go in caution of it and, you know, situate it well, integrate it in your life relative to your goals as far as you can see into the future, which I don't think any amongst us can can claim to have a a, a time machine to to predict. It'd be very bad to predict um, that can lead you astray, but just be open to what's possible. But also realize that, you know, anything you do digitally risks digital amnesia in the same way that not reading books <laughs> risks digital amnesia. I mean, you're just not getting the fitness. So. Yeah. I think it's a very, very nuanced answer. And I just, I can't see any other way than landing on our, the way we value memory is way more and not less. It's just different.
1: Wow, that is such an interesting answer because before I asked that question, I was totally part of the camp of we value memory less than we ever have. And now you've made me really think about the the idea that it's not that we value memory less, it's that our relationship with memory is just entirely different. And one of the avenues I think would be interesting to go on based on that is uh, this is how I'll frame it. When writing was first introduced in ancient Greece, I remember uh, Plato was one of the first to say like, oh, this is terrible. It's going to make us very forgetful. Nobody's going to cultivate their memories anymore because it allows us to offload our thoughts into the world. So we don't need to store it in memory. Mm-hmm. So with that understanding and how easy it is to take notes now by writing in a digital note-taking app or offloading our tasks onto a to-do list or in a calendar how would how might people think about how they should take notes with an understanding of how note-taking affects our memories
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Plato because Plato has Socrates say that, but that's not Plato's position. If you read, Mm, I think it's the fourth mm -hmm. level, I think it's the fourth letter and maybe the seventh letter. He is talking about the importance of how he wants these texts that he wrote, you know, to be preserved so that they might be useful. So he, he also puts this primacy on the available technology to help us remember mm. what, what he said, right? And what's the available tool? It's writing. So it's Socrates, his character Socrates, or his characterization of Socrates. And what he's doing there is philosophy. He's doing that sort of Zen-Koan thing. Disrupt mm. everything you think you know, think about it differently. And you know, ideally, what, what Plato is talking about in his letters that a company or... or That he wrote to be read after his death and so forth um, to help people situate the dialogues is that you think about these things. You don't necessarily agree with Socrates. It's a dialectic. It's a dialogue with those things. So that's something really always important with Plato uh, uh, above all and any philosopher because he wasn't the only philosopher who wrote dialogues. Anytime you're reading dialogues from different philosophers, always keep in mind that they are not necessarily even reflected Uh, as mm. having their their say. They're often trying to have different ideas processed in the brain of the reader. Um, Okay, so now to note-taking. I think that each person should take some time in their life to just take a deep dive into note-taking, what it is, what's their goal, and then just contend with the science. Are you going to be a science-driven person or are you going to be a convenience-driven person? Because all the science that we have right now suggests that you want to get your hands involved and you want to do it on paper. And there's just a lot of people who don't care. They want the convenience of the apps and so forth. And I'm going to just say, well, that's your that's your position. Go for it. You know, See where you land. I don't know. You could land perfectly well because, again, it's that context. You might be in a context where that actually does work for you to just have Notion or uh, Evernote used to be a thing. I never hear of Evernote anymore, but you know that's part of the problem with the digital stuff. It's like, well, this, this is the flavor of the day. This software is the thing. Then the next software comes, convinces a bunch of people that it's the real deal. And then that's the only software you hear about forever and ever. And, you know, And then, oh, now it's this new software and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And that's potentially cool because some people just love software. Cool. I mean, but for me, I go in caution of all that stuff precisely because of the ongoing platform changes. This, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow some some company that may go out of business, that may have updates I don't like to be the portal to all the notes that I've taken. I don't think so. So if mm-hmm. I'm going to use those things, I'm going to have my information on paper cards that yes, fires can destroy them. Yes, water can uh, corrupt whatever this image is, but I can also photograph this and have the best of both worlds. And then it's in a photograph that can be imported into multiple devices if I want to use them. I don't use the devices, but just as an example. Um, plus, this makes it much easier to not cheat. So this helped me memorize the symbol in a non-classical logic called dialetheism for totality, right? And what I mean by not cheating is there's no answer. Now, to get an answer, I have to solve the puzzle Of what's going on in my memory palace this totem pole oh that must mean totality right so if i have this in an app the chances are that me as this weak little meat tube worm is going to be able to resist (laughs) oh i don't know what that is i better go look it up here's my information in the app and it's just a couple clicks away to google hell i can even tell siri you know like that's weakening the skill i'm trying to train this i take my cards out with me i have no phone I just have them tucked into the book that I'm reading and I go, or another book often, you know, cause I've finished that book and now I'm putting this stuff into memory. And and this is assuming I'm just not using a raw memory palace. And I just ask myself, what the heck was that, right? Ah, that must be totality cause that's a tot- totem pool. So I'm obeying the laws of active recall which is personalizing everything, using your hands for haptic memory benefits. There's variety because there's a variety of colors there. There's a variety of things that I'm memorizing. And the, the most important part of active recall is I'm forcing myself to solve the puzzle. I'm asking myself, what was that? Which is going to form the memories faster. And I'm doing it in a way that there is no opportunity to cheat whatsoever because I'm I'm a slimy little greedy, uh, you know, lazy person like everybody else. And if I give myself that opportunity, oh, I'll just look it up. Well, then I probably will. I'm not that bad. But I, I mean, I am like that too. Like if I, if I can look it up, of course, I'm going to look it up, you know. So to learn, to be able to say things like, well, this is a non-classical logic related to dialetheism," and the, you know, the consequences of that are paraconsistencies. And oh, by the way, like omnium expedentorum prima est uh, sepentia in qua perfectiboni forma consistent, you know, like all that stuff. I get to do that because I don't let myself cheat. So that's my take on note taking. <laughs> do, do, do what you will. But that Latin that I just said there, omnia uh, expedendorum prima est sapentia in qua perfecti boni, uh, uh, forma consistent. This means the most important thing of all to choose is wisdom first. Always choose wisdom because, and here's a reference to Plato, because in wisdom is the form of the good. Perfecti boni forma consistent. The consistent, the, the, the form of good itself consists in the choice of, of wisdom above all things. If you think you're going to buck basic human biology, you're going to be the one who succeeds just doing it your way. Cool, I'll, I'll support you. You know, but you, you, the world is going to test you, and chances are you're going to be like the rest of us, mere mortals, and you're going to th- you're going to wish that you had you had taken six months to study every kind of note taking style under the sun, split test them so that you know the difference of what happens to your mind when you do digital only. Versus having some print handwriting integration with multiple colors and all that sort of stuff, you'll see for yourself. I don't need to preach about it because you can, you'll know. And that's my answer. You know, be the scientist in the laboratory of your own life. No Google search is going to answer that for you, at least not yet. ChatGPT is probably going to say, "Well, blah 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 blah," and by the way, ask a human.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, ask. Uh, <laughs> I relate to what you said about the uh, turning of the flashcard or the searching up on Google, because my God, is it tempting <laughs> to just do it? <laughs> it's right there.
0: But notice something, notice yeah. something. If you were in a classic home like I grew up in, it would be just as tempting to rather than think or rather than memorize and then think about what you memorized. It's just as tempting to go to a dictionary or go to a encyclopedia, say. So it's not necessarily that we blame the technology unto itself. There is a little bit of greater immediacy. There's a, a, a larger amount of addiction, especially because there's dopamine spikes. But functionally, we have always had this choice. We can commit stuff to memory and mentally retrieve it and then check if we were right or and strengthen ourselves as a result. Or we could just go look it up because it used to be every household or almost every household had a big old dictionary, if not more than one, a dictionary and a thesaurus. Thesaurus means treasure chest, by the way. Um, and we would have an encyclopedia. And you could exercise your, your memory by every time you look in the, in the dictionary or the thesaurus or the encyclopedia, you could memorize the stuff that you found there so that next time you don't have to look it up. So functionally, we're still in the same situation. And we will be for a long time to come because the uptake on something like neuralink if people choose wisdom as the, the form of the good they're they're going to realize that you know having holes in their heads leads to multiple infections you know follow on surgeries replacement tools all this sort of stuff like it's not going to be pretty for a very very long time if ever because it's meat that we're interacting with right and even then You're going to, are you really going to want your questions answered with ads injected directly into your head? At least right now you can, you know, skip ads on YouTube or whatever. You could get a subscription. But do you want to have to pay for an ad-free Neuralink subscription to avoid having McDonald's or whatever uh, twirling around in your mind because you had a question? The reality is, is that if that stuff goes, or a possible reality is, is if those things go to the extents that they maybe possibly can. You're going to get exactly what we've been talking about. No mind. The mind you have is going to be given to you from corporations. <laughs> so you know you don't have to you don't you don't have to worry about enlightenment anymore. The Borg will 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 ensure that you have the thoughts that uh, that are most profitable for the collective uh, for whatever agenda that they, they are seeking to fulfill. So that's it, it, this is Eckhart Tolle 101. Power of now. That now is the time mm-hmm. to to really cherish what you've got going on because we don't know what's coming. So you might as well enjoy it
1: now. The future is way too unpredictable, especially with the internet. When you said the Neuralink ad thing, the first thing that came to my mind is just, you ask a question using Neuralink and then suddenly you just hear, Arby's, we have the beef. (laughs) And that (laughs) is a scary thought. I don't want that. Um, One of the things that I... I'm very excited to ask you based off that whole note-taking insight that you just gave is I, from what you said about Notion and Evernote, I'm assuming you have not heard of the note-taking app Obsidian. Do you know what Obsidian is or no? Oh, you have. Oh, okay.
0: Well, also on my, uh, speaking of like Plato and Socrates, remember Socrates said, look at all these things I do not want. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just just add that to the list but yeah obsidian
1: uh-huh so I'm interested in asking um, because I'm an, I'm an avid obsidian user myself and I will not be hurt if you say that you um, don't just see it as like another another tool in the toolkit um, but one of the things that obsidian does unique to like other note-taking systems is it it's like a personal Wikipedia like you link your notes together. To other notes. That's what makes it unique to other note-taking systems. However, what I'm realizing from this conversation is in doing so, you don't technically do, you don't technically memorize those links in your brain. You, you form the associations in the note-taking system, which doesn't one-to-one correlate to your brain. So I guess I'm trying to figure out what, what are your thoughts on. A note-taking system that can do that is do you feel like that it validates using it for some things rather than memorizing them would it be more useful in some cases compared to less useful i have no idea how you're going to attack that but
0: (laughs) i think it really just comes down to what is your goal and does the thing (laughs) that you're using or the set of things that you're using does it help you achieve the goal? I mean, does it really help you achieve the goal? Because we live in a world, unfortunately, where so many, well, or maybe fortunately, I mean, you can see it either way and I don't want to judge anybody, but if I were to be judgmental for a second, even my <laughs> own goals aren't as shiny and bright as they could be, you know? So who cares how I achieve the goal? Like, I'm going to pin it on that I use this or that note-taking strategy. What matters is the goal, right? And was it a good goal? So I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about this or that and answer to, is this the the note-taking strategy? I'm concerned, is the goal worth doing in the first place? Because there are so Mm -hmm. many students who are out there, they're taking courses that are trying to quell their death anxiety and their fears, or they're trying to make their parents happy, or they're imagining that this is going to attract a partner in life if they have this amount of income and all that stuff. That's really, I mean, I was there too once, right? But that's all really misguided thinking. I know that now. And all I can say is, man, the adventure would have switched on earlier if I had gotten myself out of the wrong goal and into the right goal first, because there'd be a whole lot of notes that I never would have taken. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, okay. We can hyperlink them this way and that way and so forth, but let's look at it a different way. This Mm -hmm. has no answer as we noted, right? It already Mm -hmm. connects to the symbol for condition. It also connects to other symbols related to this. It connects to the fact that it's Graham Priest, who is my main guy that I read when it comes to the non-classical logic known as dialetism. Dialetism already connects without some special extra step inside of an app to the fact that di means two. "aletheia" is the ancient Greek word for truth. So dialetism means two truths, right? Like it already connects. I don't need some special step. I use memory techniques. There is no step. There's nothing needed to be done. That's just all memory, right? So I would suggest then split test it just like I suggested before spend mm. some time playing with this, that, and the other technology, cool, it hyperlinks, great, that's what the web does. Um, you know, And I don't mean to be cynical about that, but all that time that you're spent hyperlinking, split-tested against a good six months or three months at least, 90 days, where all you do is practice the art of memory and just see how many links that you can build just on autopilot, right? Because memorizing one mm. thing can help you make associations naturally to all kinds of other things and some of those things you'll use memory techniques for others just come free that's why i call it the magnetic memory method the work that i do because it's just it attracts more recall of so many more things when you establish one thing what exact number well it it, it, it's beyond name and form you know it's like you don't necessarily know and you don't need to know because you're in flow right and you are in if you really go through the whole depth of what I'm teaching, you're in flow with an actual goal that has been tested, tested deeply so that you're not trapped. I mean, uh, John Lee Dumas quoted this. Uh, I think it's maybe something he came up with. I don't know, but he said, what well, does it matter? What, how fast you're going if it's in the wrong direction, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I think that it's, it's possible to just have memory benefits from digital linking. But it's not the hill I'm willing to die on and it's not the strategy I use. But by the same token, I sort of do use it in the sense that I have a website, I write about memory and I have all kinds of links to all kinds of things and sometimes I can tell you, yeah, I think I link to the science of what have you on this or that page, right? But that mm-hmm. that's not a that's not a very solid thing. What what I want to be able to say is, hey, Tim Dalgleish, Doctor Tim Dalgleish published an article about the effects of using method of loci. He doesn't use the term memory palace. He uses the term method of loci. He is part of a team. And if you search those terms specifically, Tim Dalgleish and method of loci, you will find that. I memorized his name using standard mnemonics. I have linked his name, but I used my friend Gary Dalgleish to help me remember him and my friend Tim, who actually helps me on the Magnetic Memory Method website. So sometimes I have mm-hmm. to catch myself and not call him Dr. Gary Dalgleish. But you know, <laughs> the, the whole thing is, is that that's using the memory techniques. It is linked, but it's also linked on my site. But The actual link that I remember is the mnemonic link with a memory palace.
1: Mm, mm. And
0: that's the one I'm passionate about because it not only feels good, but if somehow uh, I don't use WordPress anymore for my website and now I use whatever, some other thing, right? It's not going to wipe out my memory. If all the links disappear and I have to redo it, I'm still going to remember that. I can do a site-wide search, find all the references and reestablish the link to his paper because I memorized it. Whereas there's lots of other things that I have vague memory of through these linking things, but they're not particularly useful memories, you know, in the same sense Mm -hmm. of the word for word, that's his name. Specifically, he uses method of loci as a term. It's spelled L-O-C-I. Look it up. You know, some people argue about the pronunciation, but they don't get into the granular details of the difference between Attic Greek and the Greek that was imported into, Mm -hmm. you know, the uh, Latin speaking Parts of Italy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so you can call it loci if you want, but I'm going to stick with loci. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I think after your explanation, I, I totally see where you're coming from. Like, why spend so much time creating just digital links if creating actual memory would create, make these associations come up on their own? Because once you have a foundation inside of a topic, you learn the first principles for that, whatever the topic be. Now you have this whole place that all new learnings can get connected to, uh, and you can just get more and more and more associations as as you memorize more. Um, so I'm I'm going to try out. Actually, I'm kind of doing the experiment that you're saying right now because I'm still using Obsidian, but I've done such a deep dive into the memory courses that you've you've given for free and. Definitely will be taking the magnetic memory method at some point as well that I am sort of doing a a split test um, in between them. So I'll be interested to see uh, the results after like three months to six months. I mean, one thing I can tell you uh, that I've used the memory uh, methods for right now that has been working incredibly well is uh, memorizing impromptu stories. Uh, What I mean by that is I'm in a speech and debate team, And one of the events that we have is impromptu. uh, And in that, you go into a room, you get two random quotations from famous authors. Could be Mark Twain, could be Einstein, anything. And you have to come up with a speech in two minutes and then give it in five. So you have to memorize a ton of stories and theories or whatever in order to give a good impromptu speech because there's no way you're going to be able to come up with a good speech in that short amount of time if you don't have a lot of, you know, good stories that you've memorized. So I have a memory palace of my childhood home with like 70 different images that associate with the the stories that I want to tell in impromptu. And it has been... <sighs> Honestly, I would almost describe it as like scary how effective it's been because this is like the first time I've really used a mind palace for a memory palace for doing something like this, and it yeah i've I've memorized like seventy different stories in the span of like just a couple of weeks, and I'm just like, what <laughs> like yeah,
0: yeah it's that's incredible exciting. I mean. <laughs> It's 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 a tremendously effective technique, and all the more so for stories because stories have space in them, or a lot of them do, where you can imagine characters playing out certain things, and then to do that, you kind of have to have a space in mind. So you're already giving yourself a quasi-memory palace from the get-go, uh, mm-hmm. provided that there are you know these characters. I mean, I I memorize these Zen stories sometimes, and. The, the key thing is always to remember, to, to, to think of where these people are. So, you know, a classic example is there was a monk. He was out for the day. He had a very, very modest little home. And when he came back, he caught a thief stealing his clothes. And when he encountered the thief in his home, stealing his clothes, he said, oh, you've forgotten some. And he started to take off the clothes that he was wearing. And the thief got freaked out and ran away. And the monk nonetheless took off his clothes symbolically, sat down in front of his house, looked up at the moon, saw how beautiful it was and said, I wish I could have also given him the moon. (laughs) Now that actually has three locations. It has like the inside of the monk's hut. It has the door. And then it has him sitting outside looking at the moon. And I may have not even told that correctly, but you get the gist, you know, because... It may be that the the thief, when he was running away, did take the clothes or something like that. That actually would be a better, more dramatic, <laughs> okay. but nonetheless, I, I pause upon what are these locations? And, you know, typically mm-hmm. these Zen stories about monks, they're, they, they, they're very simple and you, you maybe don't need to do that, but I do. And it, it just really helps. And, and mm-hmm. they're, they're a lot of fun, uh, but yeah, they come with locations, which are like memory palaces.
1: Yeah. I, I totally agree The. stories in particular have been for me the easier thing to start experimenting with memory palaces because you know they have actions the characters are already doing associated with them you got already location um i think the thing that has been much harder has been memorizing uh numbers uh with with the major system um it's becoming more intuitive over time as i start to ingrain the images that I've associated with the numbers uh, into memory uh, but I'm still in the stages where like you know I have to search up like oh what like what image do I want for this again and then I have to like actually realize oh yeah that, that's what I want to associate that number with one of the questions I did want to ask you um as well based off of what you were saying earlier about, when you memorize things, it forms a denser foundation that you can create new associations off of, is how do you personally choose what it is you think is worth memorizing? and How do you prioritize what to memorize?
0: Well, that's a good question. I like to collect a bunch of reasons why I'm doing something. So there's the old Simon Sinek start with why, which I always think is great, but also just too... Too thin. The soup is just too thin when there's only one why. Or, you know, he, he obviously goes into more nuance than that, but just to, to, to sort of start the thing, it always just sounds like start with why as if you have to do one why. I like to have five whys and I have five reasons why not. So I'm basically <laughs> trying to talk myself out of doing the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's really helpful. And then I also, depending on what the goal is, will sometimes use what's called the rap technique. So rap is. Widen your options, reality test, attain distance and prepare to fail. So if you were to take a situation like my TEDx talk that I was given uh, the opportunity to give, you know, do I really want to do it? Well, widen my options. What other way am I going to reach so many other people? You know, uh, well, there isn't one. So we're doing it. <laughs> this sort of thing. Then reality <laughs> test. What's going to be the the right talk and try to play that through? And part of my reality testing process was to, you know, get a speech together have it looked at by somebody, you know, walk it through and already he was like casting doubt, is this really the right speech to bring to the to the thing and I'd already memorized it, you know, this sort of thing. Then I I I'm in Melbourne to give the talk and I'm still reality testing it and I was like this is the wrong thing, right? But before I changed my mind, I attained distance from it and then I realized, yeah, yeah, this is not the speech I need to be giving. So I I gave myself some time and then I made the decision to change the speech pretty much, you know, not exactly the last minute, but I had enough time to memorize another one. Took a couple pages from Mm -hmm. Victorious Mind, re-sifted, sorted, screened them out, recorded it, got it to my person that was helping me. He's like, this is the speech, you know, Uh, now I'm in a different town. So I memorize it. I'm walking around Melbourne to really get it deep in and I prepare to fail. Right. Because I didn't tell anybody I was switching the speech or anything like that. Just, <laughs> this, is, this could cause trouble, et cetera. Go to the dress rehearsal, give the speech, go give the actual speech. And it's been wildly successful. So that's from a testing process. Even this morning, I was doing the rap technique because I'm releasing a new book soon called Smarter. And I'm just thinking, well, I could do it this way. I can do it that way. And I have these kind of doubts. So I'm like widening my options. Well, what are the other ways that I can do this, uh, etc. And then another exercise I like is in a book called The Wise Advocate. And it is just to sit, get yourself relaxed and ask does this make me feel expansive or limited and your 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 gut will sometimes give you some really interesting responses it might not be clear but it'll give you some some sort of responses so recently i started to memorize the opening of the book of john in latin and i did that sort of thing and i was just well i'm not really into the bible and all that sort of stuff but i was just like well does it make me feel limited or expansive and the next thing you know it's like in principio erat <laughs> you know it's just like uh away we go <laughs> it, it does indeed make me feel expansive to be able to do even just a little bit of that i mean why not you know didn't make me feel limited at all
1: mm-hmm. so, yeah.
0: so it sounds like when yeah oh i was just gonna say, those are testing ways of deciding what you're going to memorize, what you're not going to memorize, what you're going to study, what you're not going to study. Um, just be downright honest and and spend time like this, this note-taking thing that we're talking about. One of the best note-taking exercises I ever went through was to write down my perfect present and to test it for a Many many days, and I went through eleven days of telling myself an absolute lie. I was telling, I was writing down my perfect present, and I did it for eleven days. And on the eleventh day, I just thought—almost sounds biblical. On the eleventh day, um, I, remember, I remember tracking like how long I was doing this. On the eleventh day, I was like, "This is what my girlfriend wants. This is nothing to do with what I want." So I changed it, and really within a couple of months, I was living the the perfect present. It was really crazy, but that's also very not crazy. It's totally practical. So much of what people want is not what they think. They, they, they would prefer things that they haven't revealed to themselves because they haven't filtered out all the BS. They haven't filtered out all the voices and the pressures of other people and what they want. So they're living very materially instead of going for spiritual fulfillment. And the cool thing is, is that when you're when you're fulfilled in your mind, your psychology, then, then then the rest just kind of takes care of itself, or at least it can. But this is sort of back to what we were saying with Richard Weissman and the ectomorphic fantasy when you've got an endomorphic body, right? You got to have <clears like throat> some sort of alignment. It has to be realistic, whatever it is that you, that you want as well. And you need to have existing competence. So that's a, a, a very, very important principle that I was just lucky. I didn't know this term existing competence at the time, but I, I learned it later and I would realize that I was just lucky that I chose a thing where I had existing competence to base it on because my dream was to to write for a living. And I never believed it was possible, uh, which is just ridiculous that I never believed that it was possible because uh, I had been writing since I was in grade four, like like a maniac, really. So why would I not think it was possible to do it? But once I changed my attitude and realized I have the competence to do it and, and stop worrying about what a girlfriend wants, bang, I was doing it. it, 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 it was, three months from that time. I was, uh, I left the country. I was on the road in Germany with a band that I had played with before, and they invited me to go on tour. And I was totally funded from my,
1: from my writing. Wow. Can, can you tell us what your perfect present was after the 11th day? Yes, it was
0: very simple, couple of sentences. And it was basically that I am supported by my writing in a multiple so that I, you know, basically have some what they call "fu" money,
1: <laughs> you know that you know,
0: are <laughs> not gonna you're not gonna fall apart if if something bad happens. Which incidentally, something terrible did happen in the early, or at least a big threat that you know I was able to 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 not go totally crazy over. Because uh, after the tour ended, I wound up in Spain with another girlfriend and. Amazon emailed me and they said, your books have duplicate content. We're going to take them down. And instead of panicking, I was able to email them back and say, well, how to learn to memorize German vocabulary and how to learn and memorize French vocabulary has some duplicate content. You're correct. But you would then, by this logic, also need to take down Berlitz, Pimsler, And I named every company that I could find that also does language learning training where of the content is is duplicated, right? So that was part of my perfect present was also just to be calm, cool, collected, and be writing and travel I I had on there. Uh, And also that, you know, just be physically healthy as physically healthy as possible, given that I have lots of um, unfortunate diseases to deal with uh, in terms of digestion issues and yada, yada, yada. So Mm. that was it. And I would write that. I wrote that for, for years, probably seven years in total. And I don't do it that often anymore, but sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll still do it. But when we talk about training your brain, being in task positive network and so forth, I, th- I think so much of the ability to, to do what it took to get all those things done that I did and continue to do had a lot to do with that daily conditioning. But in alignment with something that was true, that I truly wanted. That I had tested, and that I had an I had a real, true competence to do. What, what mm. wasn't like I was trying to have Schwarzenegger's body when my friend <laughs> was more like Bruce Lee. It was just, and it wasn't trying to be Stephen King either. You know, it was just simply, mm. can we can we make this happen? And, we, mm. and I
1: did. It sounds like the key difference between what you're saying you did with this perfect present. And the positive thinking habits we were mentioning earlier being misleading at some points is you really hone down on not only a can I actually potentially do this, but also you asked why and you asked why many times (laughs) and it was something that you wanted to do. Right, right.
0: And in some sense, it's like that monk story. I mean, there's the thief that will... Take the shirt off your back, right? And mm-hmm. you've got to be willing to let them have it and try to give them the moon at the same time because that's mm-hmm. that's really what it takes to succeed, maybe not in every business under the world, but... Uh, Under the sun, but you you really have to have that kind of attitude that that doing what sometimes doing what you want requires just giving everything and giving it willingly and peacefully. Uh, And also, you know, there's another story that that comes to mind that that is basically spoiler alert. The story basically means you know do the real thing do the actual thing that's actually possible and needed to be done. So there's a monk who had his student with him in his hut for 20 years. They meditated every day. He tested the student left, right, and center. And he said, finally, you are enlightened. Go off, be merry, see ya. <laughs> and so <there's> some <laughs> some some weeks pass and the monk teacher, he's walking along and he comes to a river. He's, he's basically familiar with the territory, but it's been some time since he was there. And uh, he sees his student and his student, is meditating at the bank of the river. And he says to his student, what are you doing here? I I mean, I thought you were off, you know, going to be a teacher yourself or what have you. And the monk says, no, man, I'm sitting here meditating, building up my chi so I can walk across the river and go to that town over there. And the monk says, you fool. And he slaps him. He said, I taught you how to meditate for 20 years and you can't see that bridge over there. (laughs) And That's... I think of the story because I have a lot of emails from people. You know, my recent novel came out uh, for the, from the Memory Detective series, and they're like, emailing me and saying, "How can I write a novel too? And will you read my novel? And all this sort of stuff? And um, how do you do it? And all this." And then I say, well, first of all, you write a lot of things that no one's ever going to read. And then you rewrite things like Fly, Flyboy, the first novel in the Memory Detective series. I rewrote that thing four times. Then we went through 21 iterations of the physical book so that we made sure that it looked right. Uh, the person who's helping me with the typesetting. Right. And we spent, you know, I don't know, upwards of 50 hours thinking about how we're going to market this thing. What's the best way to market it, et cetera. And, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And um mm-hmm. You know, I remember one guy just saying, oh, here, I thought you were you were just going to you know, help me get it up on Amazon. And it's just like it's that exact same situation here. I just told you exactly what to do and how to do it. And the bridge is right there. I mean, but you don't have the bridge. Um, you know, there's no point in worrying about Amazon until you got a book that you actually want to read four times. Uh,
1: yeah. You know? So Pe- people th- want the, the fast pill.
0: <laughs> it comes back to this thing like this paradox where we cherish memory more than ever before. And yet at the same time, we cherish it less because the knowledge is free. It's all over the place. But yet we seem to cherish it less and less and less because still something in our brains wants that magic path over the river instead of just the practical path. The The bridge mm. is dirty, mundane, normal, everyday bridge. The peasants walk over it. The president has to drive over it with his entourage to get to the other part of the town. The soldiers have to use it, etc. Well, you do too. You know, you're not going to walk on water over there. It's just, it's just not mm. in reality. But so many people prefer the fantasy instead of just, you know, there's the bridge.
1: <laughs> you want to yeah. join me? This is
0: how I did it. But that's also yeah. an example of the unconscious mind filtering out the thing that threatens the ego. Oh, you mean mm. I have to be like everybody else? The Germans have a word for this, which I don't know that Freud used it, but I wouldn't be surprised if I find it in Freud. Um, Ausnama. Ausnahme means exception and uh, uh, Giamben, uh he, I think that's his name. He uses this name, uh, this word to talk about how people have the fantasy of being the exception to the rule. Ausnahme. Mm. Wunsch nach Ausnahme, maybe in German. I'm not sure. The wish to be the exception to the rule. And uh, it's just not going to happen. Like <laughs> maybe mathematically every once in a while, there's a lottery winner, but it's so uncommon. So yeah, part of that is Mm -hmm. part of that success is, is just the success of being willing to be modest
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: and enjoy the, enjoy the journey and just be like, whoa, this is amazing. I actually get to do this.
1: You know? Yeah. Enjoy the, the 50 hours of, of, of research into how to market the book because there, there is no.
0: And that's the thing Mm -hmm. in, in your testing, do the thing that you would be, you would happily fail. You would look back and say, oh, well, at least I tried instead of later in life, you're just like, damn, I should have, you know, Mm. I wish that I would (laughs) have, you know, that thing that you would be happy to say, at least I gave it the real try. Because if you can enjoy the path to failure, that's going to be just as enjoyable, if not more enjoyable than the path to success. Because success, all success does is... uh, shows you another mountain. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. There's another mountain you've you've seen the top of the hill and that's all you see more mountains to climb.
1: It's almost always, um, the things that we don't do that we regret the most, not the things that we do do. And I definitely am getting that from, from this whole idea of, uh, failure and success. One of the questions I wanted to ask you before my last question, is there something that you wish you had been asked that I have not asked yet? Something that you wanted to say?
0: Oh, um, I think it's all just flowed perfectly. Is there something you Mm -hmm. wish that you would have somebody ask you when you ask this question? (laughs) Is it? huh is this the symbolic nobel prize you're wishing that i would hand you the the genius question that destroys all questions that only the person (laughs) being questioned secretly hides within his heart yeah
1: (laughs) the one question to rule them all um i would say this is more of just like a meta question for for um with with like all the the stuff that you're doing in the magnetic memory method and like the people that are emailing you like over and over again about, you know, how to do these techniques. What, what made you say yes to some random 19 year old from, from Cornell asking to to go on like a podcast.
0: I just simply don't believe in random dudes. There's just, there's just no such thing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I regret one time I was very ill and I turned down an interview and it was just because of illness. But mm-hmm. it was just, just, just this amazing person who reached out and he had no viewers or anything really to speak of. He probably has not continued. I'm not sure. But he interpreted it as I didn't think that his channel had merit or what have you. And it wasn't the case at all. I was just really, really sick, but I love to talk to anybody. I mean, I would, I would want to be that person who is having conversations with people and not thinking, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And I'll tell you, I know exactly who to pay to get me on the biggest podcast. I know exactly. And so do you. I mean, it's a, it's a Google search away. There are Services that will take your money and do the schmoozing that it requires to get on just about any show that you could hope for, and it really just takes one. You get on one of those shows, and then you know you'll be on the next one and the next one. We, we see this all the time, right? So, so and so's got a new book. They're on uh, Rogan, and then the, then they appear on whoever, right? They they're just just the, the the network chain effect. I know how to make that mm-hmm. happen. I also know who to hire to have all. All of my new books and maybe even my past books have mystery shoppers show up in bookstores to buy the stuff so that it gets uh, mechanically pumped up on New York Times bestseller list, etc. But I've never gone that way. I, I just I don't mm. I don't want to be part of that world because I don't want that to be in my memory. You know, mm. The, mm-hmm. the the truth and the reality of it is is that nobody owns the memory palace technique the knowledge flows through me it flows through any teacher and the sadness of it is is that people claim territorial stakes on on things that they have no territory to claim and the internet has evolved to become this thing that allows for that if you can oil the or grease the right palms and there may be some disruptions coming that Return us back to the cool internet the way that it used to be. Or it may be that it gets worse. Or maybe it's a new mixture of things that nobody can anticipate. But I've gone out of my way to not take those opportunities. And certainly. I have experimented with things like that here, there, and the other place, but it never felt good. And I don't want to be that person who's, mm-hmm. who's who's thinking these these thoughts. But by the same token, I often think about the danger and the nastiness of of accusing or labeling other people for selling out because maybe they didn't. I don't know. Um, I do know factually that some people have done these things. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not letting anybody off the hook that I'm not like trying to do a 180 here. But I remember, I remember Green Day one day, uh, years ago, like being criticized for selling out and somebody saying, yeah, but what if they actually really like playing that music? You know, like, what if being more quote unquote popular gives them joy? And it's just like, yeah, what if, you know? And anyway, I have a lot of like weird insights into these things because of the world that I've been in. And what my band that I was in, in Germany, we had the opportunity to share the stage with some pretty big names. For 6,000 years. Mm -hmm. And we said, no, we're not going to have 15 minutes of fame because we can then say that we have toured because we were one night, you know, on the stage with some really big bands. And maybe we ran into them in the back rooms and maybe we get a picture with them. You know, it's just not worth it. Um, And yet it can be worth it, you know. It's mm. it, it's up to the mm. individual to decide. It's the same thing with the note taking on this app versus the paper. You've got to b- experiment. But I experimented just enough to know that that kind of buying my way in isn't isn't right for me. I mm. it's kind of like a weird thing. But I think the I think there there must be this abundance of cool people who just were forgotten. You know, and that's just so amazing. Imagine imagine a, Imagine that the Buddhist wheel of karma is true, right? But not only do you have to escape the wheel of karma and not be reborn, but you have to be completely forgotten. Now, I'm going to fail at that probably because, you know, there's there's definitely a digital footprint that I've made. But I think that's a cool model to have while you're alive, to live in such mm-hmm. a way that you are just joyful, that you'll everything you did, everything attached to your name is just gone. <laughs> i think that that's that's just such a such an incredible thing and um that's that's why i mean i don't see you as just a random person i see you as as a cool person who reached out and said hey i got this podcast would you like to record and you hadn't just done that right away you know you 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 were asking questions and so forth and you set the stage for a conversation beforehand and all that sort of stuff so that's Mm -hmm. not random to me at all that's That's just cool.
1: Yeah. Well, I am so grateful that you did so because there are a few conversations I can say I have entered one way and just exited a different thing entirely. Uh, And this is one of those. My last question. Oh, yeah.
0: I was going to say That's that's a mental model yeah. To hold on to
1: If you think of The u- reality universe
0: The world As a pinball game With no player Really you want to Bump into as many people As you can Because if there is No free will And we are changed Through contact With other people The more opportunities You have to bump into people To have those conversations The more you're going To change You know And mm. mm-hmm. Then, then, you, then you, you You just have A, a, a procedural memory Self-changing Operation system where you just, you realize now is the time I'm going to read that book, you know? Now is the time I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to go to that event, et cetera. And you can also equally comfortably say, no, I'm going to skip that one because I've seen enough pattern now that I can, you know, say, no, I don't have to worry about, you know, missing, missing out. So you you Mm -hmm. can have those things where two things are true at the same time, but you need enough context to do that. Content may be king, but context is God. So you need a lot of content in order to, to, (laughs) to have that amount of material sifting around in your, in your life. So anyway, yeah, I yeah. think that that kind of thing of conversations that change you, they happen more when you run into more forests and you bang
1: into more trees. Mm. It reminds me of Rippling, the this idea of like the ways that you impact the people you interact with can now affect the ways that they interact with the people they interact with. And it just like cascades into this incredible effect that you can have much more influence than you thought you could. Yeah, really. My... just let it go, let it go because it just builds the ego,
0: you know? The, <laughs>
1: the,
0: the fractal butterfly effect. Oh, I said the word it on the podcast five weeks ago. That must be why so-and-so, you know, succeeded now. I mean, <laughs> you, be, you, you have to be um, very, very cautious. So I agree with you. There is a ripple effect and I, I, I think fractal stuff is real, but our problem happens And we increase our own death anxiety, we create the prison we're trying to escape when we think, oh, it was I, me, 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 I was somehow Mm. involved in this, as opposed to that task positive network where you're part of a species that has cooked up multiple languages to symbolically express ideas. Concepts, strategies, procedures, etc. They have not. It has less to do with you and you as an individual unit than you think. It has much more mm-hmm. to do with the flow of knowledge through a medium, and that's why again mm. I would point to the billions upon billions of dollars that are involved in acres upon acres of storing and distributing human knowledge in machines. You know, Mm, mm. we, we, we are just little, little individual units through which all this flows. And when you can get, when you can get that, then some real, real exciting mental adventures begin.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So it seems to me. I'm going to have to contemplate that idea for a while. My, my last question, uh, and this will be difficult considering the background that I see you're in with all these books on the shelves. What are three books (laughs) that have resonated with you most? Wow.
0: Yeah, that's always a tough one. But Happiness Beyond Thought, I think, is a great technical manual that sticks with me to this day. I have to throw in its sequel, Evolving Beyond Thought, as one book. In some sense, I wish that they were published together, and maybe they will be at one point in the future. Um, Gertl Escherbach is another one that is uh, really, really important, Hoffenstatter. Um And, well, a third one. Well... <laughs> <laughs> it's a it, it, I mean Plato for sure. I mean, really reading as many of the dialogues as you can and reading the letters, but you know, it's really tough because I don't think that Plato can be read without reading Aristotle, you know. So, I would just say mm. all books, all the books, <laughs> you know, re- read as much as you can. Putting it into three just does a disservice to, again, that mental model of seeing just how many acres have been devoted to computation to the storing and the yeah. distribution of symbolism. So the more is more. The Germans do say all the gute ding not dry, which uh all the gute ding isn't dry. Yeah. Uh all good things are three. Um, all the gute ding is dry. Is it dingin? I my, my German is lost here. All the gute is dry. All good things are three. Um and actually the Germans say unter dem Tisch gefallen. Uh, uh, my German is fallen under the table.
1: <laughs> 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 uh, uh,
0: uh, all, good, all, 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 all good things are three. So yeah, those are three things: Girdle, Escherbach, Happiness Beyond Thought, with Evolving Beyond Thought, and just read Plato. Just Plato, because it is astonishing that those thoughts haven't changed, those questions haven't disappeared, the conclusions haven't really changed or disappeared either. The status of what is true, what is just, what is moral what is aesthetic, what is to be done, you know? none. As far as I can tell, little or nothing has changed. And that in itself is astonishing. Oh, let me shoehorn in here Shakespeare. <laughs> because Shakespeare <laughs> is, Harold Bloom argues that Shakespeare is the moment where you start to see fictional characters change. So if you think about Socrates, right? Socrates never really changed. Oh, sorry. Let me condition that. He says, Harold Bloom, that Shakespeare is when you see characters change inside of themselves because of themselves. So Socrates never changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Oedipus changes, he changes because an external event forces him to change, right? But if Hamlet changes, he changes because of a thing that happens inside of his mind. If Henry Mm -hmm. V changes... He happens because of a thing that happens inside of his mind, which is why Henry V is so interesting. It starts, oh, for a muse of fire that could ascend the brightest heaven of invention, kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold our swelling scene. And that idea that monarchs, kings, and princes acting, and the kingdom itself, the scene is swelling, it's changing, it's vibrant, it's dynamic, and you're going to see Henry V change not because of external events, but because of his internal psychology causing him to change with respect to the external events. So, okay, there's four, five. I don't know. I don't know how you count this now. I refuse refuse your rule. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Well, I think think the the point you made in refusing the rule is very important, which is I always feel bad asking that question because (laughs) there's obviously like some books that people have liked more than others that they've read, but it's ultimately does a disservice to the fact that there's just so, so many, so much incredible knowledge. Um, Just read more books. Get reading in the first place. If you're not reading outside, of uh already where can people reach you outside of the podcast
0: well the the uh, the mothership, so to speak is magnetic method.com speaking mm-hmm. of reading come july well, come june i think now um might start in may not sure yet but anyway come some couple months from now we're gonna do my read with momentum program which is a live cohort program and mm-hmm. it's it's usually five weeks and we get into what reading is all about. It's an antidote to a lot of the speed reading garbage that you see out there. I talk about why speed mm. reading is largely pseudoscientific. Pull out the stuff that's good, that is in speed reading stuff, get rid of the bad, and then focus on what reading can be for you when you do some of the things that we talk about today, like have correct goals. Then if you have goals that are correctly assessed or at least optimized, correct is maybe not the right word, but you know, optimized, then how do you... How do you read? Like, What do you know? How do you know what to read? So we get into strategies for finding the best possible reading. Then how do you take one book and turn it into three books or five books so that one book multiplies in a way that creates a path that draws upon your existing competence as it creates new competence, but doesn't leave you falling flat on your face? or uh, leaving you feeling unfulfilled or more confused. And, and, and one book can do that. I talk about the, what's called a cornucopia book, which is a term that I sort of came up with. At least I think I did. I don't know. But again, there is no me here, right? It's just like the word cornucopia exists. It's like the most perfect kind of thing that our ancestors cooked up to describe a, a horn of plenty. And if you can find a horn of plenty book, it will give you enough to read for a a good couple of months and then I just basically talk about creating your own university for yourself because I never wanted university to end uh, but I wasn't going to take another PhD so you know I just <laughs> recreated my own stuff so anyway that's all at magneticmarymethod.com and you'll be notified if you, if you sign up there for the free course that you mentioned and mm-hmm. let the games begin because we do lots of things Memory Detective is this game a new game will come out eventually and uh, there's the all kinds of adventures with experiments and uh, great fun it would be lovely yeah. to have